Hi, everyone. I'm Christina, and this is the Broke Girl Society podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, we are joined by B. Akins, who is the founder of Laney's Hope, which is an organization that helps other problem gamblers, their families kind of understand what's going on with this disease, addiction, affliction, however you choose to identify to it. Um, so it's a great, it's a great spot to go if you're looking for more information about the science behind gambling addiction. You can go to uh, laneyshope.org and see what what B's been up to there. She also does a lot of advocacy for gambling awareness. And one of the the things that we talk about in this episode is the GRIT Act, which is hopefully going to come up soon. That is the Gambling Addiction Recovery Investment and Treatment Act. And we'll kind of talk about it in this episode. And I'll have a link to like a fact sheet on this. Um, it's basically trying to take some of the tax revenue money that's that the federal government collects from the gambling establishments and taking a small piece of that to give back to gambling recovery. Um, because if you know, and you're in the States, there is no federal funding for gambling treatment here in the U.S. And this would, would go a long way to, to really helping out um, those of us struggling from gambling addiction. So there's a great little bit where we talk about that. Um, you can find more information, like I said, in the show notes, or you can go to the National Council of Problem Gambling. They'll have more information there as well. So yeah, well, we'll just go ahead and roll on into this episode. Again, thank you guys so much for listening in. And here we go. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on and to have this conversation with you. So hi. Hi, thanks, Christina. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's been, a, a, for some reason, challenging for us to connect. Yeah, but I'm glad we finally have, and we've made time, even though we had some technical difficulties at the beginning. And I was like, I'm not rescheduling this. We're going to do this. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I would have, but you know what I mean? I do. Um, so I've been kind of, I came across you early on. I think I was talking with um, the Algamist founder, Rick mm -hmm. Benson, and um, I interviewed him early on and he'd actually given me your name. And I had been, so I've been following your journey on Facebook for a long time. And I think um, I reached out to you early on, but I was still really early in the podcast and still trying to, you know, figure out what I was going to do. And um, so, yeah, I'm glad you're here. And if you could just kind of maybe share a little bit about your journey sure. uh, of gambling harm. Sure. And kudos to you for jumping in as you did and starting the podcast and, um, you know, caring. I think that we all have, once we start to experience the blessings of recovery, there's a torch to be carried. And I think we each have our own journey. Some people do it quietly. Some people do it one soul at a time with somebody they meet that's earlier in their recovery and needs help. Um, but good for you, girl, for the way you're, you're carrying the torch. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I certainly don't want to uh, give my, uh, you know, what it was like when I was a kid kind of story. <laughs> but, but I have had, I, I am a woman in long-term recovery um, from gambling disorder and alcoholism. And um, I just turned 27 in January. And, um, you know, I hesitate with the date. And it's not always top of mind because I really believe, Christina, in the today so far philosophy. You know, when we're in a meeting and people want to identify their time, um, there's always the question, how about today so far? And it oh. keeps, it keeps, yeah, I do a lot of Zoom meetings. and that's, I like that thought, though. And so yeah. you're, you're saying 27 years in recovery? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and my goodness. But today so far doesn't mean, oh, I'm white knuckling it. Gosh, I hope I don't gamble today. It's, it keeps me uh, grounded in the fact that this is a chronic mental health illness. Um, it will never be gone from me. I just have lots of tools and lots of recovery under my belt that it's, it's not likely. And I would never, I have a, such a healthy respect for this disease that um, I never take it lightly. So 
today so far works for me. Yeah. I really like that. I think that's the first time I've really heard it in that yeah. expression, you know, cause you hear the one day at a time or a day at a time um, expression, which is like the slogan of recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I really like that. Um, yeah. yeah. And the I slogans are slogans for a reason they work. They do. And I remember coming into recovery early on and, and I remember asking in one of the online groups, like, what is, oh, like, oh, dad mean, or like, you know, you know, it's how they spell it. I'm like, what does this even mean? And then they were explaining it to me. And then I was like, what? But then it's like, you really think about it. And especially in those early days and you're coming out of that survival mode, it's, it's really is like one moment at a time, like Mm -hmm. one, one hour at a time. And then one day at a time, it's like, yeah, because if we get too far ahead, you know, you kind of lose the moment. You kind of lose what you're what you're trying to gain in this moment. And for most of us that are listening to this podcast, it's it's a bet free day. Exactly. And and plus the number of years, uh, if somebody's got a fair amount of time to a person that's very new to recovery, that could be overwhelming. Or the thought of you mean I can never gamble again? And that's why we say, How about not today? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I see that a lot of times too, in, in the BGS, you know, when somebody comes in and they're like, I just love gambling so much. The thought of not being able to gamble is just really, really overwhelming to me. And it's just like, well, um, I never really kind of know what to say to that because my journey with gambling was a little bit different. Like when I was done with gambling, I hated it so bad, but there are people that come in and they, it's just, they're recognizing the harm maybe earlier than I did. And they're saying, well, I love it, but it's causing me to not be able to make ends meet or it's, you know, it's getting into starting to cause me financial harm. And, you know, so now I have to choose and that sucks. And so it's like, sometimes that's that's kind of a hard conversation to have with somebody, especially when you it's created such harm in myself to be able to say, well, I understand that, but you know, it's, it's a progressive disease. So even though it's not causing you the same kind of harm, it it caused me because it took me to the really dark place. It's, it's progressive and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting that only a gambler would think uh, that way. Oh, I love it when I can't pay the mortgage or the rent and I love it. It's um, it's an insidious disease. Yeah, yeah, and I think only a gambler would understand when somebody says that to you as well. Whereas somebody who's never experienced harm from addiction is like, "What? Like, just, just like that makes no sense. Like, stop." But you know, as even it, it caused me the level of harm that it did. To to hear somebody say, "But I love it," it's like I do kind of understand that because I remember being at that point where I loved it, and I kept justifying the harm, and. It's like, so, so it's, it's an interesting community for sure. And yeah. it's one of, of tremendous hope. And I, understanding. Have, I have no love for it. Excuse me. But by the time I came in, no love, no joy. Okay. I gambled. This is the interesting thing, Christina. I gambled to numb out and not feel anything. And then I would swear, I'm never going to do that again. I will never do it again. And the next day faced with the wreckage of my past, you know, the wreckage of, of unpaid bills or, or creditors calling or secrets and shame and all of that. And my solution in my unwell head was, I'll go gamble. Then I, that'll make me feel better. And the very thing that caused all of that fallout and all of those problems was the, the thing that seemed like the solution, which tells you there's a mental health issue going on there. What is it? What is it they say? And like the G, the insanity of it, right? The insanity of of how it's causing harm, but yet we can convince ourselves that it's going to solve the harm, mm-hmm. and it's just this this cycle of insanity, or I call it the cycle of chaos. Um, and it was like once I stepped out of the the cycle of chaos that I could really finally move through it. Um, but it it is it is tremendous. So your story, does it start? Like, when did you start gambling? Um, we are going in the way back machine, huh? I started <laughs> gambling. My first bet, I remember vividly, I was seven years old. And I was at a thing that they had in Pennsylvania called a fireman's festival. And 
it was a fundraiser for the firehouse and they would have this carnival type atmosphere. And I saw a giant wheel and I was fascinated by it. And I asked him how, and I was seven. He shouldn't have let me play anyway. Right. Right. How does that, what is this? It looked magnificent. And he said, well, you put, put a nickel down on the number you like, and I spin the wheel. And if that number where your nickel is comes up, you get that many nickels. And and I remember it, and I won seven nickels. And that's crazy that I remember that when I was seven. There's so much that happened before and after that that I don't remember, but I remember that. Yeah. It must be that that first feeling of right that dopamine or or whatever it is that first like feel good for, feeling for thirty five cents. <laughs> yeah, 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 but. You know, it's been a long time since um, since I've been chasing that dopamine, and life today is um, it's still it's so much more peaceful, and there's the chaos isn't there in my life. And what I experience today is I have a friend that says that it's kind of caught on that life still life still gets lifey, you know, and it doesn't matter how long term your recovery is things still happen in life that are really challenging. But in recovery, I have resources. We have resources like so many. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite tools. I'm jumping around. I hope you don't mind. No, I, that's usually how it goes with me. <laughs> okay. One of my most simple and favorite tools that I've had for years, I have this menu on my um, mirror and it's uh, B's minimum daily requirement and in parentheses, select minimum three per day. And these are things that came out of my own brain, of my own experience. Um, and they're very simple things. Like, so I call upon my daily menu if I'm having a day where I feel like my feet are dragging or my enthusiasm is not there or my joy is not there, my hope is not there. And I go, have I, let me look at the menu. And it's like, have a healthy shake, go to a meeting pray, do quiet time, journal, exercise, call a friend, give a hug, get a hug, go be with family. Um, those are off the top of my head, but they're, and tools that I know, like, oh, have I eaten today? Have I called my sponsor today? Have uh, I surprised someone in love today? Have I written a gratitude list? This far down the line in my recovery journey, those things are very much a normal part of my day in my life, but life still gets lifey. And um, my menu has been really effective for me. Oh, that is, that is a nice tool to be able to kind of, you know, have something to remind yourself um, of you have all these different options to kind of help you deal with the hard stuff. And my friend Gail says, talks about life getting lifey all the time as well. And um, and that's the honest truth. Um, I felt like I've dealt with more in my recovery of course, because I wasn't dealing with stuff. I wasn't right. dealing with shit right. when I was gambling. So, I mean, having to deal with all these things and some really hard emotions, you know, like like separation and divorce and those types of things in recovery. And it took me having to recognize how I was going to do this in a healthy way. You know, how I was, how, how am I going to maintain my accountability? How am I going to, going to check in with myself and, and all these different things. And it's, it's really interesting how we kind of, build our own little toolkit and we know the things that are going to help. And, you know, definitely connection is, is probably one of my biggest tools connection. And when I'm, I'm fearful, mm -hmm. I find myself trying to get curious about that fear, like, like that. really kind of work through, like, what am I really fearful of? What are the worst case scenarios? Can I handle the worst case scenarios? I can, because up to this point, I've, I've handled hundred percent of what life has thrown at me. And I know that no matter how bad it gets there, there's, it's always going to be okay. You know, it's always going to, going to somehow like, like life is going to shift and it might look different um, in the future, but I'm always going to find ways to connect and to be curious and to work through things. Um, and so that's, that's been a really, really powerful thing to learn um and self-care you know sometimes um 
it just requires self-care and sure. and that's where you know i've been it's so interesting when you came in and when you got active and and you reached out to me at a point in my life where life has been super lifey for the past two plus years um and you know i needed to practice self-care mm-hmm. and part of that is uh being still i've been less active as far as reaching out or um you know active in laney's hope and i've uh i've been this past year to, i'll just tell you you know because that's what we do in recovery is share our story authentically is um COVID, early pandemic caused a huge financial loss for my husband and I, like devastating, the kind that brings you to your knees, unexpected, unforeseen freak incident that changed our whole future and our security. Um, We know money can be a trigger and I wasn't triggered in that way, but our whole lives changed and we had to rethink our retirement. Um, you know, I'm very active in gambling advocacy, but for all intents and purposes, I'm retired from my other jobs, you know, that I used to do. And so life got really lifey ever since March 18th, 21. Um, we ended up turning it into an adventure. <clears throat> we sold our home, our best asset, and bought an RV and traveled the country for 14 months in an RV. Um, you know, and had some big challenges along the way, but it turned into such a blessing. And, um, you know, we've settled in Virginia now and we weren't here, but four months and Mike, uh, my, the love of my life, um, died unexpectedly, suddenly and traumatically, um, February 23rd of last year. So I took a year of completely like, just be still and do what, do what you need, nurture your soul. I still, um, would go to, uh, GA zoom meetings. I was still active in my church and in my church, small group and my circle of friends who are amazing. Um, many of whom, many of whom came from Las Vegas area, from Nevada, from Florida to be with me here in Virginia so that every month I had a girlfriend, a sister friend here. Mm. And so the journey, it's like the exact same time, Christina, where you were launching. It wasn't time for us to meet because I was just sure. doing, you know, doing, doing the best I could. So now I'm at a point where um, I'm finding my passion restored. And I'm finding, you know, yeah, God has called me to do this and to speak about problem gambling. And in a bigger way, to be an advocate um, so that people that aren't directly impacted by the disease understand or care. And and that's my mission. But it, it had to wait for that, that period of time. And you carried the torch, so that's how that works. <laughs> I think it's, it's definitely interesting how the higher power steps in um, and how you know, it navigates and I talk about higher power and however that, however the listener connects with it. Um, what's interesting for me is I had to learn, I'm still kind of learning my relationship with my higher power, but having to kind of get out of my own way has been the biggest lesson for me when it comes to navigating recovery. And I'm like, I've never been a leader in anything. I've never, um, put myself out there really. And until all of a sudden, you know, I found myself in recovery and trying to to figure out what that even means. And um, I just knew I didn't want to do it alone. Um, and right. Yeah. Community. And so it was just kind of like, I don't know, I've just kind of kind of gone blindly into all this and um, just taken it where it's where it's supposed to go. I do get in my own way sometimes still. Um, and I, but I have this beautiful, wonderful group of women around me who are quick to let me know, like what I need to hear or where, where, what I'm holding mm-hmm. myself back on. And so it's, it's been, it's interesting how the higher power kind of guides us. So can I ask you, 
when you were gambling, let's kind of get into your story a little bit, um, as much as you feel comfortable sharing. Where, when do you think it really, be, you can kind of give us like an idea of when it became a problem for you or kind of that area of your life? Um, I don't know. I think it was a, it was a underlying, a potential problem waiting to happen based on my enthusiasm when I turned 21 that I could uh, go on a bus with my mother from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. And I had, well, we don't talk about money, but I had my, I do. do? Okay. A hundred dollars. And I thought it was, I was a young woman, 21. And it was, I was so excited. The amount of adrenaline I had. Um, I was probably a problem gambler in the making, you know, but it, it turned, um, got significant in my um, late twenties mid late twenties. And, um, then in Nevada, I don't, I don't in any way, uh, think that it has anything to do with Nevada because there's gambling in 48 States, but you know, the Las Vegas area was really attractive to me because of the amount of, of gaming available there. And, um, I mentioned that I'm also in recovery from alcoholism. And those those yeah. went hand in hand for me. And so when I stopped drinking, um, I just chalked up my gambling debt at the time to the fact that I wasn't in my right mind. Because, right? you know, the truth was I didn't want to stop gambling. Didn't want to get all right. right. So I continued. Well, the drinking made me Correct. do it. Correct. And right. When, I'm, when mm-hmm. I have my faculties, I'll be fine. And that was not the case. And, um, you know, it was a very, I'm not unique. It was a very devastating road. I answered yes to all 20 questions. Um, from the the GA format. And I was done. You know, I just had no more. um, I just couldn't play one more game, or one more ridiculous lie or story or I was exhausted. And I'll tell you, my lowest was last night I gambled. My mother died. And I I know for many of us, a, a grief or a loss can really I hear it so often, you know, the, the people's story includes when my mom got sick, when my dad got sick, somebody close to them. My mom was diagnosed with cancer and given three months to live. And she was only 58 and we didn't even know she was sick. And the bottom fell out of my world. And my gambling escalated like crazy at a time when she really needed me. And there weren't cell phones then. And um, if there were, there were those big brick things. It wasn't like it is today. And I would go be with her, and then I'd go to a casino in the middle of the night. Part of my thought was, what if mom needs me? And I had to, I had to numb out. I was like compelled to to gamble. So that's really when it it exacerbated over grief, really escalated. So my lowest, my lowest moment. Um, was about three years after mom. Yeah, it was two, two years, maybe after mom died that I got into GA. Um, I took some precious, precious gems, jewelry that was my mother's to a pawn shop in Henderson, Nevada. And I needed $10,000 to cover a shortfall on a checking account. My husband had found $10,000 missing and like any uh, self-respecting addict in action, I said, oh, that bank, you know, I'll get to the bottom. Of it. Right. And uh, he was. Cue gaslighting and manipulation. Right? I think so. And I went and tried to pawn mom's jewelry. And the only reason I didn't do it is because it wouldn't give me enough to cover me. And so I, uh, I went and gambled that night, hoping ridiculously that I would win that amount of money in one night, which had never happened. And I was just, it was the only time I ever left a casino with money that I can remember. I gambled all night and I was like, I'm tired. I'm just so tired. I can't do it anymore. And that was my last, my last bet. When you talk about it, can you still feel those emotions even 27 years now? Yeah. 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 Me too. I can it it can take me because I, I when you're talking about how tired yeah. you were, about how 
how, how I can feel it. Like, because that's how it was for me. I was so tired and I just felt like I couldn't take one more day of this. I couldn't take one more day of, um, you know, and, and sometimes in my conversation, it sounds like I'm making light of like the behaviors, the manipulation, the gaslighting. And, and I think anybody that knows me knows that that's absolutely not the case, but, um, sometimes you just have to look at it like, you know, as, as an addict to an addict, you know, these, these behaviors were just so recognizable. Um, but yeah, just that, that overwhelming feeling of exhaustion yeah. and, and pain. Fatigue and that was to my bone. To your core. Yeah. And, and just, you know, for me, you know, my story was like, I want to end my life um, because I can't do this another day. And then it was almost, you know, almost like my higher power. And, and I don't, I don't know, cause it's, it was kind of a blur, but there was a switch that flipped in me that night and it made me recognize I love my family and I don't want to want to end myself. I want to end yes. the addiction. And it was in that moment that I decided that I'm going to fight for, for my life and the life that I deserve. And, you know, that was kind of what started my journey, but just even hearing you say, you know, how exhausted you were, it's just like, I feel yeah. like this, like my face is flushed. Like I just feel it mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. Well, for me, I'm so grateful that you made that choice. Yeah. 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 And I'm grateful you did too. So what, what did that look for you? Like the next day, what did that look for you? Mm. Look like for you? Um, I was sick to my stomach. I was, I took three baths to try and calm down. My husband was coming home late that night and I knew I had to tell him and I was just terrified. It was, a, it was an awful, awful long endless day. And when he finally, did he know you had a he problem? Knew I had, but I had gone back out. He thought I was abstinent for an, a period of time, like nine months. And I wasn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I had family believing that yeah. as well. So the, you know, the poor guy, I, I sucker punched him emotionally, I sucker punched him. Yeah. Um, we, we're messy. There's a lot of fallout that we don't intend to cause. No, nobody would do that to somebody they care about. And, um, <laughs> the interesting thing is we did what we did to ourselves because there's a lot less self-care than other care, you know. Like you said, I I didn't I love my family. Yeah. 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 So, you know, from there I was um it was my intention once I got into recovery to be anonymous. Just I I guarded my anonymity very very strongly. And I think, I mean, I know you know my story, but um, in 2008, my sister Lainey was also a compulsive gambler. And at one point when I was, you know, well into my recovery, she called crying and dying and told me that she had gambled away all of her money and she too was a compulsive gambler. I was so glad. I didn't know. And I was so glad she called. And um, that I knew that she had opened up by saying it. She had opened up all new possibilities for her life. And um she moved out to Nevada to be near me because we had over a hundred meetings a week there, uh, live meetings. And that was beautiful to have her there. And I celebrated her one year birthday with, you know, anniversary with her and gave her my one year pin. Um, but ultimately she moved back to Pennsylvania and she self-excluded in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. And, um, what happened was in late May of 08, I got a call that I better get home quick, home being Pennsylvania where I grew up, because it seemed that Lainey was having a stroke. And um, my aunt said, if, if she survives this, it'll be a miracle. So I flew home and Lainey was in a coma in intensive care. And she was a cancer survivor, which is a miracle, right? And a cancer survivor, lung cancer, who was taken out by a disease that you can't see, you can't smell, you can't detect through the blood test. And 
her gambling addiction took her out, I found out that she had been gambling again. And that explained the overdose on medication and explained everything to me. Um, but I have to tell you that the doctor, uh, Lainey was in intensive care in a coma. The doctors wanted to see her medicine in case she was uh, had a drug interaction. And I do want you know, our sisters in recovery to know that there can be a, a drug interaction between an antidepressant and St. John's wort, which is used as a natural antidepressant. And that's what the doctors were looking for because that can have a very uh, detrimental effect. And so they wanted to see her meds and I found all these receipts, which told me everything. I know that um, people with gambling disorder have the highest suicide rate of any addiction group. Um, I told the doctor, I now know more than I knew before. My sister's a compulsive gambler, and I just found out she's been gambling again. It was heavy. It was solemn. And he brightened up. He looked up away from the medicine that he was looking at. And honestly, Christina, he had this beam. He was beaming. And, and with a smile, he said, did she win? Like, what the? Oh my God. What the F are you talking about? She's in a coma three feet from you. What? That's bizarre. That is a bizarre response. And oh my God is right. You know, I, that was a life changing moment for me. And um, you can imagine my feelings towards that physician at that moment. But I sat with it and I realized. He doesn't know. Lots of doctors don't know. That might have been a resident that was working on no sleep in 22 hours of work or who knows, top of mind. But the top of mind for a medical professional was to ask that question. And I thought, I've got to talk about this so they understand. And I thought, well, I'll do it when I retire. And uh, I kept negotiating with God. <laughs> you know, I'll do it when I retire. Yeah. And the next thing you know, Lainey died in June of 08. In January of 09, I sat on a, a board of a women's uh, women business owners organization, and there was an emergency meeting, and our immediate past president was sitting in the room with her head down, um, clearly, clearly crying and, and tr terribly troubled, distraught. And there was a hush in the room. And I said, what did I miss? Clearly, you all know something I don't know. I found out that our immediate past president uh, was a compulsive gambler, and she had embezzled all of our treasury. Okay. And at that moment, I said, well, ladies, there's no accident that I'm on this board. I'm a compulsive gambler in recovery, and I can help. And that was the first time I ever said it in a business setting, in a professional setting. And um, I was able to offered to take the, the woman to a meeting and also the business women to, to guide them in a responsibility we had to file a police report and do the right thing. And it was that weird straddling. And I realized I can't, I do understand both worlds, you know, the, the business part of it and um, the recovery part of it. So um, I started to learn. I thought, well, if I'm going to talk to doctors, if I'm going to talk to professionals and help people to understand this who are not impacted by it directly, I better learn. Because before that, I didn't actually, I didn't really care why. I knew that I couldn't stop gambling on my own. And with therapy and with the 12-step program, I could. And that was enough information for me, you know, until, but I can't talk to doctors or professionals or people that, you know, could help, could be part of the solution if they, if I don't know about the addiction. Um, so I started attending conferences. And at the very first conference I went to in Nevada, Nevada State Conference on Problem Gambling, Keith White, who is still the executive director of the National, I'm sure you know, on the National Council on Problem Gambling. This is what he said, Christina, the problem with people in recovery is they're so anonymous, they're invisible. And I'm like, oh, geez, he's talking to me, you know? And 
It's true. That though. is. Why are we? Why do we are we ashamed of of our recovery? Why are we ashamed that we actually have a a mental health disorder? We don't have a weakness of character or a moral failing. We have an illness. It's a public health issue. And so now I I advocate um, much more boldly. And I take exception. I take exception to things like, more and more I take exception to the idea of responsible gambling because it puts it on the individual. It, It still kind of points to, oh, if you gamble responsibly, you won't have this problem. I actually um, caught Keith at uh, Boston last year and he was, came up, he he really is a generally a nice guy and he, you know, does a lot for the gambling harm community. Like, I mean, he is a huge advocate for, for this. And I remember just telling him, and I don't know him, you know, I didn't know him. It was like the first time I met him, but he was, he was coming up to me and talking to me about the podcast and stuff. And um, I just said, you know, I, you know, we talk a lot about responsible gambling, but I was a responsible person right. yeah. when I started gambling, I re- gambled responsibly mm-hmm. to a term for the first part of my gambling history. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the last part of it that I gambled to harm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so to say responsible gambling, it, it just, it's, it's not true because, I was a responsible person until my addiction took right. hold. And so to say that I was an irresponsible person isn't it fair. Is. And it's it's a lot of pressure to put on people general, like generally. Mm-hmm. And to say because you have this illness means you're just an irresponsible right. person. Right. And that's not that's not fair. And you know, it's like where's where's like yes, I have my accountability right? I have my accountability. I I caused harm with my gambling. But at the same time, where's the industry's accountability of making it so like in our face? You know, I live in Oklahoma. We have 143 casinos here. Like, I think we're sixth in this, in the nation or no, we're third in the nation for gambling addiction. I could be wrong, but we're, we're up there. We're definitely in the top 10, you know, and we're climbing quick. And I think I read something today from the Oklahoma Association of Problem Gambling, where one in 15 people in this state have uh, adults have a ga- gambling problem, depending on how severe yeah. it is. One in 15 people, That's- adults, one in 15 adults in this mm-hmm. state has a problem with gambling. Yeah. So it's a public health issue. Exactly. I would say I would say one in fifteen is is definitely a public health issue. And where where is the conversation around that? Something I'm very passionate about is that there's no in account. We're talking about accountability. There's no federal funding. Not one dollar. The federal funding goes towards problem gambling with research and treatment and prevention. And you know, and there's. There's the argument to be made that certainly the state councils on problem gambling and the national, they do a lot of education, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of research that's not funded by the gaming industry. There's starting to be more, but gosh, we have a tsunami coming with, with the online betting and sports betting. It's, it's huge. Um, so yeah. We're so underprepared for, for what we're already yeah. facing that when we when we start to which thankfully sports betting failed this year it but they'll keep bringing it up and i I think a lot of that has to do with our governor and they're really in our governor's relationship with the tribe the tribes here um and so it's like i'm hoping that that stays kind of you know strained a little bit and that we can put it off for as long as we are because we we're just not making the progress we should when it comes to gambling. Well, you awareness. know, I want to talk to tell you about um and, you, and your listeners about the GRIP Act, which um the National Council is pushing uh helping to advocate for. It's I should know what that acronym stands for, gambling recovery investment something, but it's GRIT. I should know it by heart, but we just use so many acronyms. Um 
But right now, there is a 0.25 access um, tax on online gaming. Resulted in over $100 million last year. It's not earmarked for anything. $100 million. So um, so the GRIP Act is uh, to, it, it proposes that half of that money uh, is used for gambling harm reduction with uh, a portion of it going to each state and then a portion of it going to research. And uh, there, that is not a dead issue. It's, it's going to be before Congress at some point. So when that happens, I'll make sure to let you know. Um, you're, yeah, And you're absolutely. in touch with the National Council, so you probably will know, but. Uh, I'm kind of bad with the politics like of, of like these things. And I know they're important and, but I'm so, I'm so caught up in just, just helping people on those early, the early days that I've, you know, people kind of pull me into the different things. And I think it's called the gambling addiction recovery investment and treatment act. So, yep. I, I did. Like, yeah, I had to Google it, but I have, I have heard of it and, um, I was kind of at a loss to of what the acronym was, but, you know, um, it's, we can't all be doing the same thing and your focus being on folks in early recovery and especially women in early recovery, such a need and for our sisters and, you know, you just do you and you're doing it so well. And, um, you know, we don't all need to play the same position on the field. For me, I'm getting more and more passionate about the advocacy portion of it. And yeah, I'm starting to get a little feisty. Er. er. Yeah. I like <laughs> yeah. it. Definitely. You and my friend, my friend Kitty, who um is she she does a lot of um, you probably know her. Um, she does a lot of, of advocacy work. I think she was there at NDC. Yeah, because I did. Um, a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's just like, I, I love it. I love seeing, you know, and I'm not saying that I won't be on the front lines of that for sure. Um, I just, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of somebody that kind of holds back and, and watches okay. um, and my advocacy is, looks a little different, but um, yeah. So you started Lainey's Hope as kind of a way to, to, help you do your advocacy work um and they can find they can find you at uh laney's hope.org um they can find mm-hmm. them yeah if they want to donate or find out the information and more about you talk a lot about the science of this addiction oh and that reminds yeah. me of my thought ping. Ping. yeah it's like squirrel for me you know that Dude. movie squirrel. anyway um what i was talking about when you were talking about the physical side of the gambling addiction, which impacted your sister. Um, and I had a lot of physical issues with my gambling. Um, I have diabetes, which nobody in my family has diabetes. Um, I have ulcerative colitis. Um, and nobody, well, I do, my family does have some stomach issues, but ulcerative colitis is definitely a stress inflammatory disease. Um, and so it's like these things, showed up. And when I was gambling, my weight ballooned, ballooned up when I was gambling because I was eating terrible. If I was eating, I mean, I was eating just high carbs. So it's like all this impacted my health, you know, in recovery, I've lost quite a bit of weight. Um, and I've gotten my diabetes under control and my ulcerative colitis is in remission and all these things that recovery has done for me physically. Um, but I just kind of wanted to go back to that point before I lost it, as far as how our gambling addiction affects our health, not just mentally, but physically. Did you experience any like yourself, the physical ramifications of your Uh, gambling harm? For me, I would just say, um, sleep deprivation, um, difficulty sleeping, um, dare I say, uh, bladder issues. (laughs) <laughs> well hey i i i could see that though sitting in those chairs didn't want to get up like you and i were casino gamblers right. like um to be able to just sit there you didn't want to lose your machine right. uh especially if it was hot or whatever if it's your favorite machine um and yeah i completely get that as well utis yep. all the time mm-hmm. 
you know, because not, not taking care of yourselves. And, um, so, so that's interesting, but, you know, along with that stress, there's heart disease, there's all these different impacts that sometimes we don't even feel until later on down the road. And I just, I thought that was an interesting point when you were talking about, you know, how it impacted your sister's health as well. Yeah. And and as you said, the science of it, the, you know, the the brain of a compulsive gambler will light up exactly like heroin addict, the cocaine addict, the pleasure centers. Um, you cannot discern them. So if we, we showed that to someone and said, what is this? And it's it's an addiction. And people don't understand that because we don't ingest anything. Yeah. We make our own dopamine. You know, and it doesn't mean it's any less real. It doesn't mean our brain isn't hijacked. And um, the, it's the tricky thing about people understanding gambler's disorder. And it may be tricky, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And when I say I'm getting feisty about it, Christina, it's like I'm tired of justifying it. Like, yeah, it really is a real disease. Like for the for the love of the saints, it's been in the DSM since 1980. And in the most recent DSM, um, the I shouldn't use that. I mean, the acronym is for uh, the American Psychiatric Association's, you know, Bible, their manual, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, recognizes it. It's time that the federal government recognizes it and pays some heed to it and provides, you know, does research and provides treatment and assistance for people. Absolutely. And support for services out there to, to, to allow more opportunities. Um, I'm connected with a lot of women in the UK and there's a lot of money for gambling harm Mm -hmm. available in the UK. And, um, I have four women that I've connected with over there. Four women have started their own programs um, with a fifth one, just going before a board and getting awarded finance to, and these are women specific programs. And it just, it just floors me. So they're opening all these opportunities for women to come in and, and create recovery space Um, specific to women. And I know a lot of people by now know, the reason why I feel like women need their own recovery space is because there's so much that goes on in a woman's life that they don't provide space for at a GA meeting, like hormones, menopause, empty nesting, you know, go in there and try and talk about how your, your emotions are all over the place in a GA meeting with there's one of you and there's five men and see how, see how that's received. Of course, they're probably going to nod their head and be like, okay, yeah, because you know, they're, they're an accepting bunch but they're not going to connect with it. Not only that, my biggest issue is you take a woman who's been harmed at the hands of a man sure. and you say, the only way that the only space that we can provide you is a room full of men. I mean, can you imagine? And so it's just like, I think it's so important that women have just a safe space. They they have the option. They can go into, you know, most women have good experiences with GA and, and are mixed recovery rooms. Um, and that's great, but there are so many who just need a safe space and don't need to worry about what they're talking about. No, that'd be terrifying. If they've had a a physical harm. Now that wasn't my experience in, in Nevada where I mentioned how many meetings there are in the Las Vegas area. Um, very much completely mixed male, female ratios. And it wasn't, uh, heavily, you know, more male than female. And I'll tell you, there's so many times that I would tell the men in that room, like it would just come up and I would have to say like, I am so proud of you men because they had a, they showed a sensitivity and a caring and, and a strength, but there was strength in their vulnerability. And there were times when it just blew me away and I had to acknowledge that because yeah society's not easy for men to deal with their things either how do you, how do you be strong and um don't cry and whatever other messages they get as as kids and then have this heavy stuff to process 
And that's why I think the recovery rooms in general are such a healing space um, mm-hmm. because it allows people to, to be vulnerable and yeah. to, you know, because that's, that's the reason why we're all there is to connect with this issue that we're trying to overcome and to heal relationships and to heal um, all these different aspects of our lives. And you need a group of people with you. You yeah. cannot do this alone. And whether it's a safe space for women, whether it's a safe space for everyone, whether it's it's whatever you need, whether it needs to be a community of people that are like you. Um, you know, I just think it's it's important. It's just an important message to provide space for everyone. Um, you know, and cover those needs. And I I think by having federal funding, it would it would definitely offer more opportunity. Absolutely. more opportunity and more ways and more connection and, and so much more. So it's just unconscionable. It's, uh, it's just not okay. And so I'm going to continue to advocate and, um, and more so. And I now live in Virginia, which is not far from DC. There, I mean, there are guidelines for a nonprofit, as you know, that cannot, uh, cannot lobby that, B. Aikens, a citizen of Virginia, cares about this very passionately. And B. Aikens, the founder of Laney's Hope, can can do certain things um, to raise awareness. And um, it's just, it's time for change. For sure. It definitely is. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you're going to be on the front lines with all the wonderful people who are trying so hard to bring attention to this cause. And... Um, I, I know things are going to change, but it takes, it takes us, you know, combining our voices and, and making, you know, talking about this and breaking the stigma and the shame and, and uh, just sharing, sharing in the passion of, of helping yeah. uh, to overcome. So I thank you so much for, again, for your time and for the work that you're doing. I, I really appreciate you. Back at you, girl. Thank you so much. Thank you.